You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word. We are looking this morning at Psalm 22 for our sermon text. Working one by one through the Psalter, we come back here to book one. Psalms 1 through 41 comprise this first book of the Psalter, focusing on the kingship of God over his people. As David is the primary author, probably the only author of these Psalms, we see him pointing us to Christ over and over and over. It comes a unique series of psalms, Psalm 20 through 26, which some through church history have said this is, in, in many ways, a prophecy of the, the life of Christ. We saw in Psalm 20, the, the, the birth and the earthly ministry of Christ. Psalm 21, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, preparing for his Passion Week. We come today to Psalm 22, where we see clearly the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And in the subsequent psalms, it's, we see the resurrection, the ascension, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the final judgment. Whether or not you agree with that scheme of these, uh, this collection of psalms depicting the life of Christ, there is no doubt that we're coming to a psalm today in Psalm 22 that speaks of Christ's suffering. As recorded by Matthew and Mark, the words of the psalm are spoken by Jesus Christ on the cross as we read earlier. As he bore our sins under the wrath of the Father for us. So as we read this psalm, we are transported not to 1000 BC to some place in the life of David, although yes, David wrote this. We are transported to sometime around 30 AD to a hill outside of Jerusalem where our Savior is bleeding and dying upon that cross. As the psalm is read, see our Savior in all of his suffering and subsequent glory. So hear now the word of the Lord, the 22nd Psalm. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. And you, they cried and were rescued. And you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by my people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. 
My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. How do you respond to this? Yes, a simple reading, but do these words, what do they do to you? Do you feel the weight of them? Jesus Christ on the cross, suffering, languishing for his people. I'm struck by this turn at verse 22, this incredible confidence we see of our dying Lord that he had in his father's plan of salvation. I'm getting ahead of myself. Two brief notes about this superscription before we get back into the text. It says that this psalm is to the choir master. This is something that was sung in worship. It was according to the doe of the dawn. And frankly, scholars don't know what that means. It's probably a, a melody or some liturgical term. This is a psalm written by King David himself. And we've seen over and over, as we've gone through the Psalter, we've seen David as a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ, a prefiguring of the great Messiah, the great King and in his successes, he was a shadow of the great king who would follow him. And in his failures, it's a reminder of Israel's yearning for a truly righteous king. But I think with all of the specifics that are recorded in this psalm, particular details, and describing an execution, I don't think this is David merely speaking about his life. Maybe he is reflecting on something that occurred in his life. But this text is primarily... As Isaiah that we read earlier, it's a prophecy. It's a prophecy given to David by the Holy Spirit to see the coming Messiah, what he would endure. It's hard to see David here operating, as theologians would say, typologically. 
I think this is David, the prophet, showing us what Christ's suffering would be like. Because Christ felt forsaken by his father for his people, come to him for an eternal salvation. Because Christ felt forsaken by his father for his people, come to him for an eternal salvation. This text breaks nicely into three sections. First, we will see together, verses 1 through 11, God's distance. Second, verses 12 through 21, the enemy's nearness. And then third, verses 22 to 31, earth's praise. So God's distance, enemy's nearness, and earth's praise. Let's first consider verses 1 through 11, God's distance. And it begins with those famous words uttered by Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a profound sense of distance from God. The psalm begins on the lowest of low notes humanly imaginable. It says, why have you forsaken me? What biblical scholars call the cry of dereliction. To cry from Jesus to his father. Why have you forsaken me? But we can't miss the fact there is trust here too. Because he says, my God. Not oh God, but my God. My God. You can only imagine what Christ experienced in that moment. But to add insult to, in to injury, David and the psalm shows us that, that God seems to have treated the, the forefathers of Jesus, maybe even better than Jesus himself. In verses 3 through 8, Jesus says, Why is the holy God enthroned on the praises of Israel? Why is this one who, who delivered the fathers when they trusted him, the one who rescued them when they cried, the one who vindicated them when they trusted in God, why does this God let me sink to the lowest of lows, the lowest of scorn by the people? Why do you let me experience this, feel so far away? Why do you not seem to be answering me? He confesses that the father has overseen his life from the womb. God has been faithful to him since he was but a child. And he concludes with this plea in verse 11, be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. A plea to the father. And I think it's important as we see all of this applying to Christ. These are the words of Christ upon the cross, what he experienced. To be careful theologically, what are we saying happened? I think it's important for us to say what is not happening as Jesus said these words. We're not saying that the second person of the Trinity was somehow being ripped apart, ripped away from communion with his Father and the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, God does not exist and the universe would not be. So this is not the second person of the Trinity being ripped from fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. But neither is, is going on here. Neither is the divine and human natures of Christ. Neither are they being separated. Because if they were, salvation would not be possible. So we can't be saying these things are true. So what is happening? As Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Gerhardus Voss says this, Jesus momentarily missed an awareness of divine love, felt the full divine wrath, and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Where John Owen says, Christ was astonished and silenced in the experience of his unspeakable anguish. Both of these are highlighting the sense that God is not present. The sense of Jesus Christ that there's this lack of awareness of divine love. There's an unspeakable anguish that he's feeling. Why? Because in this moment, Jesus has become a curse for us in this moment. Christ, the priest, is offering himself as a sacrifice. And he who knew no sin became sin in this moment, that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ felt like, because of this judicial judgment that came crashing upon him, Christ felt like he was separated from the Father. He felt the weight of our sin and its effects. As such, he had lost all sense of his father being well-pleased in his beloved son. There's much in these first few verses to discuss. More than we have time for now, but let me just say there's prophecy here. There are prophetic things said in verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And they mock him with words. And this is exactly what we see recorded in the Gospels. As Jesus hung on the cross, those who were deriding him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So much truth here of what Christ experienced. Indeed, these are the words of Christ as he experienced that. He experienced the height of suffering in human flesh. Can you imagine it? God felt distant. And not only that, but he felt his enemies were near. We turn to verses 12 through 21. God was distant and replaced by that, by God's nearness, were the enemies now. These verses focus on imagery of animals, these bulls, bulls of Bashan. Bashan was a region in north, northeast of Israel, now in modern-day Syria, that was known for rich precipitation and vegetation. And so the animals that were there were known to be the strongest in the region. So these are the strongest bulls, the strongest animals possible. This ravening and roaring lion, these dogs, a company of evildoers, they're encircling him. As he hung upon the cross, these evildoers were down below casting dispersions upon him, as it were, circling him, their mouths wide open. In these verses, we see again more crystal clear prophecies about the sufferings of Christ. Verse 14, it says, my tongue sticks to my jaws. And after Jesus recited this on the cross, immediately they came to him, offering him something to drink. They thought he was thirsty. We see in verse 16, clearly, they have pierced my hands and feet. This is a very strange reference if you don't have the crucifixion in mind. It can't refer to much more than that. Christ being crucified with nails in his hands and his feet. And then in verse 18, the dividing of the garments by casting lots. As the soldier stood at the foot of the cross, casting lots to see who would take home the clothes that belonged to Christ. These things are so specific that I can only take them out to be a prophecy of Christ. And we see every jot and tittle fulfilled on that good Friday. There's a cry, a 
cry here, the longest cry in this psalm, verses 19 through 21, crying for deliverance. But the result of all of this, the, near, the, the distance from God, the nearness of the enemies, the result comes, is described in verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. The result of this was death. David was describing the execution of the coming Messiah what he would experience on our behalf and behold the suffering of our Lord that he suffered for us that he suffered for you, his child. We cannot begin to comprehend what it was like, but these passages show us something, a small glimpse of what it was. This is our suffering Lord. This is the King of the universe dying bloody on a cross, mocked with a crown of thorns. Why? For your salvation. I've read this before. This bears repeating. B.B. Warfield makes this incredible statement. His famous essay, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. Our Lord did not come into the world to be broken by the power of sin and death. But that's what looks like is happening at this moment. It looks like he's being broken by the power of sin and death. But Warfield says, no, that is not why he's come into the world, but he's come to break it. He has come as a conqueror with the gladness of the imminent victory of his heart. For the joy set before him, he was able to endure the cross, despising the shame. This glorious psalm does not end here with death. We see a turn. Something changes between verse 21 and 22. And we can talk later if you're interested. There seems to be maybe, maybe a pivot. The last, uh, the last phrase of verse 21. Opening the door, now we enter into psalm, uh, to verse 22. We see now the earth's praise. Something has happened. We have come now to verse 22 and we enter new vistas. We are not simply looking now at the suffering Lord, but something else has happened. We see now life and praise and the glory of God. Where does this come from? Something I think is quite amazing. As Jesus was on the cross, he, he was quoted to have said the first verse of this psalm. But I think two things, one or two possibilities are in play here. First is that Jesus quoted this entire psalm there on the cross, maybe mumbling it as he labored to breathe every breath. I think Jesus either quoted this whole psalm or by quoting the first verse, it was a common rabbinic tradition where the rabbis would quote a verse and by quoting that verse, understand that their listeners, being well-trained in the, in the word of God, would understand the full context. And so by Jesus quoting this first verse, or maybe he said the whole psalm, he is calling to our mind as he's hanging on the cross all of this psalm. He's not just calling to mind verses 1 through 21, but he's calling to mind verses 22 through 31 as well. The suffering Lord on the cross had at least in his, in his mind, if not on his lips, the truths of this psalm, the truths of this, these new vistas that we are entering into. There's so many themes that we could unearth, but let me leave it to just a few here that arise in this last stanza. We see, first of all, the resurrection life of Christ. We have Christ in verse 21 who is on the doorstep of death. 
who is in the dust of death. But in verse 22, Jesus now says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. He is no longer the suffering Lord, but now he is a triumphal. Jesus, the prophet, is now proclaiming salvation to the brothers, telling of the works of the Father. This is not something done by this dying Lord, but this is done by the resurrected Christ. He owns his people as his brothers, and we must not too quickly rush rush past this, because this is the Savior of sinners, who now calls sinners his brothers, to come into his father's household with him. He calls us to praise the Lord with him. Our elder brother beckons us into the father's presence to praise and glorify him along with our risen Savior. We also see in this last stanza the working of God the Father while Christ was on the cross. We see this in verse 24. It speaks of, for he, the Father, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Speaking here of the afflicted one, Christ himself. And he, the Father, has not hidden his face from the Son, but has heard when he cried to him. This is an astounding statement. Because Jesus here is referring to his own suffering, even as he hung on the cross, even as he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also says, the Father has not hidden his face from me, even while I'm afflicted. The Father's face was never taken away from the Son, though he did experience for a time as if the Father's face was away from him. Jesus says he knows with confidence the Father was with him, even as he bore the judicial punishment for our sin. The Father never truly forsook him at any point in time. Instead, the Father heard as Jesus was on the cross, he heard the cries of his Son, of his beloved Son, to save him. And of course, that is what the Father did by raising him to life on that third day. The resurrection life was the answer of all of these prayers. Jesus had confidence of what was to come. I think we can also take this reality of Christ suffering for us, but yet the Father's face was still upon him. We can take the reality, and I do think we can apply this to us as well. Because there are seasons of feeling far from God, are there not? You may be in the midst of one now. And you who are in Christ, how much less do you have to be concerned about the Father turning his face from you? Because you do not bear the judgment for your sin. Christ bore that on the cross. And how much more does the Father still smile upon you? You are Christ's brother. And as Christ was never despised, so you can never be as well. Christ was never forsaken on the cross. And God's people, even in the darkest of days, we can know that we are never forsaken by the Father as well. Jesus here shows that salvation is coming to all people. Salvation to the afflicted. Salvation to all who call upon his name. See this in verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts Live forever. Jesus is welcoming 
to all who have been afflicted, to all who seek the Father. Jesus will not turn any away. And he promises that he will bring you to the Father. And this is a a, a benediction that Jesus pronounces. May your hearts live forever. Those who come to Christ, this is true of you, that your hearts will live forever. As we've said so many times, a heart here is not not biblically, uh, biblically, it's not simply talking about our desires. It's not talking about follow your heart kind of a thing. It's speaking of a deeper sense of the whole being, our thoughts, our affections, our, our actions. You, in your deepest being, will live forever because of the resurrection of Christ, the salvation that he bestows. Salvation upon the afflicted. All are welcome. All are called to come to this dying and now risen Savior. And the result of this, verses 27 through the end, is the whole world praising God. This is a a beautiful picture, a glorious picture of every corner of the earth being filled with people praising the Lord. There's there's two phases of history where I think this is is speaking of. The first is, is now. Speaking of now, where where the gospel is unhindered. The gospel goes to every corner of the earth, to every tribe and nation and tongue. After the resurrection, the Spirit is now given and we take the gospel to the four corners that all might praise the name of the Lord. We live in this age of of an undiscriminating call. All are called to Jesus Christ. I think these last few verses are ultimately fulfilled, though, of that in, in, in what heavenly worship looks like. It's fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns and covering the whole earth will be Christ's people. All those from all time who have looked to him and have been saved, they are praising the triune God forever and ever. This is a stunning song of triumph that comes after some of the darkest words of all of Scripture. It ends with this incredible statement of God's word. He, of God's work, he has done it. He has accomplished it. It's like Jesus on the cross, his final words, it is finished. He has done it. This has been accomplished for you. This is the gospel. It's not that you are to try harder or do more. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is that Jesus Christ has saved sinners. Come to him. The gospel is that Christ's work on the cross is given to those who come to him by faith. It is finished, arranged in eternity past, accomplished by Christ in history, and the Holy Spirit applying it to our lives. It is finished by the work of Christ. A glorious truth indeed. What a statement of victory and triumph uttered by Jesus Christ in his final moments. Yes, acknowledging the pain and the suffering that he underwent, but looking forward to something far, far greater. Have you ever thought of the Psalms as the place to go to understand the gospel? We've seen it over and over. Every every Psalm, I hope I've shown how every Psalm is, is pointing us to Christ, showing us the gospel. But here it is so clearly. Do not miss it this morning, friends. The suffering of Christ and his subsequent glory. The proclamation that Jesus has died and risen again. The proclamation that all are called to come to him this day by faith. 
And you will be counted among the multitude in heaven for eternity with your older brother, Jesus Christ. Christ saves sinners because of what he did in his life and death and resurrection. All of these great promises here belong to those who call upon the name of the Lord. All of them. And what a comfort that is in this life, this present evil age, as Paul calls it. We need to be reminded that we belong to a kingdom that is to come. We belong to the kingdom of God on earth. Too often we're distracted and forget and turn from the things of the Lord. Because we forget this. We forget that we have been purchased by our dying Savior who's risen again. But this is what we need to be reminded of over and over and over. Behold our Savior. The one on the cross, he knew precisely what he was doing. The the, verse one, the the question of why, this is not asking for understanding because he knew exactly why he was there. In this Savior, we can trust. The Savior of sinners. In him, indeed, we must trust or else there is no hope for you. Our suffering will be as great as his for eternity. Friends, I've said it again. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Behold Jesus Christ. Receive him and rest upon him alone for salvation. And Christian, do not leave the throne of Jesus Christ. So we seek nourishment from him. As he makes these promises anew to you this morning, look to him for salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we are astonished at the suffering of our Savior. We're astonished what he experienced on our behalf. But all the more that he knew the end from the beginning, and he was doing this for our eternal security. Oh, Lord, we rejoice in this image that everyone on the four corners of the earth is praising your name, oh, Jesus, come quickly. May this be true. We praise you, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. For listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.